Please be seated. If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open it to Psalm 8. As we have this week and next week, we'll be spending the time in the Psalms, which is a wonderful, enjoyable thing to do during the summertime. This week, we explore this very well-known psalm, a psalm that C.S. Lewis refers to as a short, exquisite lyric. Commentator Derek Kidner refers to Psalm 8 as being the, an unsurpassed example of what a hymn is to be as it tells the story and retells the story of God's grace and his glory, who he is and what he has done. As you're turning, let me lead us in prayer that God would speak to us during this time that we study his word. Our holy God, we, we do come and you are worthy of all of our adoration, all of our praise as we lift you up in song and take our prayers to you. But let us continue to worship you as now we give you not only our ears, but our minds and our hearts as well. You would speak through this word that you have recorded for us. You would give us understanding. But more than that, that you would renew our hearts and therefore our lives through what you have taught us. Bless us that we may bless you. May we bless you by listening with the commitment to allowing your spirit to shape us. We pray in Christ. Amen. Psalm 8. Hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you should care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the seas, whatever passes along the path of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The word of our God. What we see in Psalm 8 is a person who is wowed with wonder and therefore who is caught up in the essence of worship. What we see here is not so much an example to us as it is an invitation for us. And what I mean by that is while there clearly is an example of somebody who is experiencing something and God has honored it by recording and us for our seeing, it's not so much an example that we are to look at and then copy, or if we do anything differently, that we're therefore wrong. What it is more than an example is it's an invitation to experience the, the wonder and the affirmation and the satisfaction of our souls that we see the psalmist expressing. And who doesn't want that? The reality is, is even though we all long for that and, all, uh, and we seek uh, to find ways in which we would have satisfaction, 
I think if we're honest, most of us would have to acknowledge that that's not our regular experience. For some of us, we do experience it, maybe more frequently than others. For some, it is an experience that we have had. For some, it's an experience that we've had, but they seem to be very few and far between. And for others, it is a longing that they've never really experienced, they've heard of, but haven't really felt or tasted it. The whole idea that we would find satisfaction and joy in our souls. One of the reasons I think that it is difficult for us to experience it or certainly to live this way is because we live in a culture with so many distractions. Earlier this summer, I read an article on what, uh, 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 I guess it's a, a subject that's called light pollution. And generally speaking, light pollution uh, is something that occurs in areas where, with a more concentrated population, in our urban areas, larger cities, where the lights that come from our homes and our cars and the street lights and anything that lights up the sky sometimes it's so bright that it dims out the stars in the heaven. It's not that you can't see them, but they don't shine brightly. They don't draw your attention. They are kind of blending in with the lights that are surrounding us entirely. The writer of the article described it this way. It's light caused by streetlights and other man-made sources that has a disruptive effect on natural cycles and inhibits the observation of stars and planets. Now, he's not dealing with this from a spiritual standpoint, the article that I read. And so when he's talking about the, the light that uh, disrupts our natural cycles, he's speaking more of some of our sleep patterns, the, so, the, the presence of light, uh, even a trace of it. Our brains think that it must be morning. It wakes us up, and so people sleep, but not as soundly as our, our bodies need or that brings us rest. But it's not only the physical patterns that are disrupted, but I believe it disrupts our spiritual patterns as well because we are designed to be in awe of God. And part of the way that we are in awe of God is when we see the heavens that he has created and we're just drawn and recognizing there is something, someone who is so majestic that our thoughts rise above ourselves, our circumstances, and our environment and transcend leading us to seek after God. And having this light pollution just makes it more difficult for us, or it's a distraction for us, particularly as we live either in or nearby cities. Now, if you live further out in rural areas, it's not difficult. Uh, the further out you go, the, the easier it is. It's less of a problem for you. But it's interesting that they have found that this is a, a common problem within our culture. As I was thinking about this, I realized that light pollution is not the only distraction that we, as a people, face. We live in a culture, or the current of our culture, really mitigates against two essential practices for experiencing the satisfaction of our soul, to recognizing the glory of God, to experiencing general, uh, genuine and, and um, transforming worship. We don't do well with the whole idea of either sitting still or being silent. You ever drive along the highways and, and maybe at rush hour and you get stopped at a stoplight and looked around at the cars around you? One of the things that's quite amazing to me is how many people are on their phones while they're there. 
I, I know some of them are looking at Waze and others are looking at their Google Maps, but not everybody is lost and trying to figure out where they're going. Some of them are probably just very conscientious, are redeeming the time, and that 30 seconds going to waste there, that they're at that stoplight, they just can't, they can't spare that. And so they pick up the phone, whether it's to make a call or to check something out, and, and shockingly, even some people seem to be texting um, uh, while they're at the stoplights. We just don't sit still very well. And silence is something that many of us don't experience in our day-to-day -day lives. From the moment we awake, whether a TV or a radio goes on, or the moment we get into our car and the radio is on, whether we're listening or in the backdrop, through the clutter of our, our day, through work or shopping or interacting with people, to the time we go uh, to bed, we can go through whole days and maybe long periods of our lives without experiencing any silence. Even in our worship service, I know that the 30 seconds of silence where we confess our sins, for some of you that's the highlight of our service, and for others, I've heard, it's painful. Why do you do that silent stuff? I mean, at least we play music when we silently prepare to come to worship, but this dead silence, that 30 seconds, we just, it screams at us that silence is just so loud because we as a culture, we as a people are not used to it. And yet both of those are practices that are stillness and silence are necessary to hear God and to be awed by God which is necessary for us to experience genuine worship. We live in a culture where technology pollution is as difficult for us as is the light pollution because we can always be busy. We can always have noise. We can always find something to distract us from God speaking to us as he does through his creation. And what I want to do this morning is this, is that I want us to find the way of wonder. And Psalm 8 invites us to wonder together about several things. And we're going to look at three this morning. We're going to look at the wonder of creation, the wonder of humanity, and the wonder of the gospel. So we begin, we begin where the psalmist does, in the wonder of creation. Verse 1. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the whole psalm, he, uh, he is speaking of different aspects of creation. He speaks of the heavens in verse 3 when he talks about the stars and, and the moon. We see him speaking of angels in verse 5 when he speaks of heavenly beings. Uh, we see him speaking of the animals uh, that, uh, and the birds uh, and the fish in verses 7 and 8. And the psalmist here is declaring the praise not of the creation itself, but of the God who is seen as the artist and the creator and the designer and the director of all things. And we need to let this speak to us. No doubt most of you who are here, if not everybody in, in the service this morning, probably may believe and hold to the fact that our God is the creator. But that's not the predominant argument in our culture anymore. Some of you have studied apologetics, which simply means an argument for the faith. You might be familiar with the phrase, the cosmological argument. Others of you are not. Now you have your word of the week to work into conversations. But the cosmological argument is, is simply this. It's an argument for the existence of God that 
claims that all things in nature depend on something else for their existence and that the whole of the cosmos must therefore itself depend on being uh, a, a being that exists independently. It's not my definition. I took it from the dictionary, um, but it, it is a good one. But if we were to put it down in, in simpler precepts, it's this. We just understand, and this argument helps us to, most of us understand this, is that something does not ever come from nothing. And nothing always produces nothing. And so therefore, if there is something, then something must have created that something. That's just the, the basic argument. There are far more profound arguments, but that's the, the basic argument uh, where most of the Western world, and certainly all of Christendom, has understood from the time of God's revelation. But we have counterpoints. And so leading atheistic thinkers in regard to creation might say something like this. In the beginning was stuff. No one really knows how that stuff got there, even though we know that something never comes from nothing, but apparently this stuff was already there in the beginning. And then this stuff exploded, and it threw everything that we see into just the right places. It threw the planets, the galaxies, the moons, and the stars right where we find them now. This astronomical chance put the sun at just the right distance from the earth where we would neither burn up nor freeze to death. It put the moon exactly where it is so that we can get seasons and tides and so that the moon can keep our planet on its axis. And this is an argument that one way or another pervades our culture. If you are a seeker here this morning and you're not really sure about this God creation thing, please forgive me for the snarkiness. It's, it's a gift, um, but a curse. Um, and I don't mean to bene- demean you. And one thing, I, however it's phrased, it takes, seems to me, take an incredible amount of faith to believe opposite of what even the science would say. But wherever you are in your thinking, Psalm 8 cries out to us. And it tells a different story than the predominant narrative from our culture. Psalm 8, along with the other scriptures that we have, it tells us the story of a God who created all things from nothing, the Latin phrase ex nihilo, simply by speaking all things into their existence and putting them in their place. And he did this out of his own goodness, not because he needed anything. He did it out of his own creativity and his own artistry and his own design. Put every star where he wanted it to be, which is what the psalmist is declaring in, in verse 5. And he put the sun where he, we, he knew we needed it to be. And we need to think about this in a culture where the dominant narrative is that everything and everyone was created by chance. Psalm 8 is drawing us. It's inviting us to remember that when we look at everything that we see around us, we see the handiwork of a wonderful and wondrous God. 
world full of those examples. Legend tells us about the work of George Washington Carver. In other words, the story I am about to tell you is true. Some of the facts may have been changed without my knowledge, but uh, they most basically it's true. But as I understand it, George Washington Carver, who was not only a, a, a brilliant scientist and instructor at Tuskegee, Tuskegee Institute, he's also a godly man. And wanting wisdom, because he recognized the scripture said to call wisdom, he wanted insight into the world. And so he prayed to the Lord that the Lord would give him the wisdom of the universe. And he felt then a voice speaking to him saying, George, that's a little too much for you. So he prayed for the wisdom of the world. And he felt yet again this nudge saying, that's still a little bit big for you. So he prayed for the wisdom of agriculture. And George, let's dial it down a little bit. And somewhat in exasperation and faith mixed together, he said, all right, then give me the wisdom of that, the peanut. And the Lord said, now we got something we can start with. George Washington Carver poured all of his intellectual capabilities and all of his scientific observational skills into studying the peanut, that little thing that grows and plants all around here. So insignificant. We throw them on the floor when we go to steakhouses and found over 300 uses for the peanut that had never been discovered before, many of which we use every single day without even thinking about it because it's become so common in our day. 300 uses from a little bitty peanut that bring benefit and pleasure to our lives today. It is amazing the complexity even in the peanut that would make George Washington Carver and anyone who's aware of that testify to the Lord, scream to the Lord, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Have any of you seen the B movie? Not enough parents in here of young kids. The B movie came out in the late, um, late 2000s. It's a Disney animated film about bees in a beehive. And in the Bee movie, Jerry Seinfeld is the, plays the main character, the main bee, uh, who is coming of age and trying to find his place in the world or in the hive. And what's, what's he going to do for the rest of his life? And it's told from a bee's perspective. And I'll try to tell this without spoiler, but um, he has an opportunity to leave the hive. He encounters people. And then he is stunned and appalled when he finds out in a grocery store that people have claimed all the honey and they have put their own tags on it and they sell it for their own profit, giving no credit to the bees at all who he says do it all. He says that he thought that bears were bad enough but humans are, are far worse and so he in an outrage goes back and leads a campaign and takes humanity to court and wins in his civil lawsuit. Having won the, uh, the, the case, all the bees then go on vacation, right, a long vacation. When the bees go on vacation, all the vegetation dies. I commend the movie to you, it's not, ways, it's not beneath you. But apparently one guy who had seen it with his kids, wondered, is this accurate? I mean, is what they're claiming in this film actually true? 
I think I heard about it on a, on a TED talk. And so he did some investigation. And here's what he found. The USDA estimates that honeybees do between 11 and $16 billion of work for American, American farmers each year. And if bees were no longer around, the cost would be absorbed by the American consumers. Because the costs would be absorbed by the consumers, it would result in a price spike with an economic effect that would price fresh fruits and vegetables out of the reach of the working poor, who already eat far less of these items than uh, their wealthier neighbors. And what the guy calls the B-copolix uh, timeline instead of apocalypse, it's a B-pocalypse, he says here's how it would unfold. Within three months of the last bee disappearing, we're going on vacation, producers would see record low harvests. And grocers would have to explain why products such as almond butter had tripled in price in just a few weeks. Within six months, most farmers would have to convert their fields to wheat, which would still be around because wheat is pollinated by the wind and not by the bees or other insects. And by the end of the first year, we would all have a very bland and boring diet, and you who are gluten-free would be up a creek. And this from a tiny insect that as a kid I used for batting practice with a wiffle ball bat. And yet our agricultural system, much of our life, our health, is wrapped up in the place that God has designed in this little honeybee. It is absolutely amazing. There are many, many other stories and observations of that. Those of you who are doctors or scientists or engineers, you all have your areas of expertise that are far beyond my ability to comprehend and see the complexity and the wonder of what God has made. And it is an awesome, awesome thing. And this is what the psalmist is experiencing as he is pondering the creation of our God. But one of the things that we need to also understand is as we ponder creation, it's not just about being awed by the complexity of it. We are told in scriptures that creation itself speaks to us. It teaches us something about God. Psalm 19.1 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims its handiwork. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul tells us this, for, in God's invisible, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that all people are without excuse. In other words, the creation just testifies that there is a God. It tells us stuff about God. What it doesn't necessarily tell us is what it tells us about God. In other words, creation speaks to us not as clearly as specific theology, but it says something that is so significant that we are lesser without it. What I mean by this is that it speaks to us in a way that I, I, I label as kind of abstract theology. And I, I mean with that what, I, what we would see or appreciate about abstract art. And, and as I said in the first service, I say again, for those of you who are artists, please, Forgive me in advance for how I'm going to butcher your, the, the, my understanding of what you do. But as I understand abstract art, it's the beauty that draws us to it. 
the abstract nature continues to cause us to ponder. It is speaking to us. Sometimes we speak clear, somewhat clearly what the artist had in mind. It speaks other things to us. But what it never does is we never exhaust what it is saying. There's something transcendent in the abstract art that while it is sending messages to us, it is also saying there's even more than you can comprehend. Creation speaks and is telling us things about God. It is testifying about those things, confirming those things, but it is also reminding us that God is greater than our understanding. We can have systematic theology, biblical theology, and those are vitally important. They teach us specific principles. But there is a tendency among those who are systematic theologians or biblical theologians, those who have a pretty good grasp of theology, to suddenly kind of feel like we have God figured out. But with the creation, no matter what it is that we are able to hear it is coming. And it's not quite as clear. We don't get the principles quite as clearly. There's kind of illustrations of truths. There's also a transcendence that says the one who made this is even more. And so we can have a healthy understanding by what he has revealed through his word and a healthy awe of who he is by what he speaks to us through his creation. In Psalm 8, invites us to be awed and to ponder and wonder about the God of our creation. We also wonder about humanity, or we ponder the wonder of humanity. That's what the psalmist is doing here. Beginning in verse 3, he is thinking about all of this creation and the God who has made all this stuff. And then he thinks about himself and his brothers and sisters and says, what is man that you would be mindful of him? In other words, that you would be aware that you would know about him. And, and son of man, that you would care for him. And then he goes on and he shows that God has cared and he is aware of man's condition and man's state and gives us a de demonstration of what he has called us to do. He's put us in dominion over the creation that is his. He uh, is, um, uh, and he is aware of our needs and he's providing for us. And, and the psalmist is awed at the thought that the God of this creation knows us. God is awesome. And you see how important it is for us to remember this reality. And maybe a better question is, is this, is what happens when this truth slips away from our consciousness? When we sort of know that God knows about us and that he cares for us, but that just becomes part of the background noise. It's not gripping our hearts. How do we respond? The reality is that what all of humanity does, including us, is that we seek the value and the identity and the affirmation that God has given to us, but we seek it in other ways, other places, and through other people. Mike Cosper, who is a, a, an author in the book that he titled Regaining Our Wonder, talks about a full-length mirror that hung in his bedroom his whole life while he was growing up. At the beginning of each day, but characterizing in the, the school year, he would look into that mirror and he would ask the same question. 
is this me? And he says in fourth grade he stood before it wearing a Mr. T t-shirt. In seventh grade he stood there with acid washed jeans and a silk button-up shirt. In tenth grade, trying to get the approval of girls in his school, he wore Abercrombie and Finch sweaters. And he said the question always remained the same. Is this me? And he goes on and he explains this. He said, I was always trying to prepare a new version of myself to present to people around me, a version that improved on the one I lived with. And I used to think that I was the only one who felt this way, but as I have grown older, I've come to believe that whatever this impulse is, there is something universal about it. The need to be seen in a certain way, to present a better, more put-together version of ourselves, someone more beautiful or more clever than the mope we see in the mirror. What he's describing of himself, as I think he's right, is a universal reality. We spend a lot of our time trying to posture ourselves for our relationships and relationships for other people. And it's a reflection of our longing for affirmation and we find our value in that affirmation. We want people to be mindful of us and when we feel that that's not happening, it's very frustrating and sometimes it's, it's very, very hurtful. And every single day, that war is raging within us. We have a need to be accepted and to be approved and growing older we find we don't grow out of it and we're going to find that approval somewhere and when Cosper Road resonated with me and I think back into my own life and I realized through most of my early life and my youth and, and through college I thought maybe I would find that acceptance and affirmation and value through athletics as I got older, it's the posture of maybe I should pour some effort into intellectual things and maybe people will think that I am wise and that would give me worth. The reality is I long for affirmation. I long for acceptance. I long for approval. I long for your approval. I long for the elders' approval. I long for the visitors who I haven't even met here this morning. I long for your approval so that you'll come back. I long for approval in the people in the community. I don't even know. I just want them to know and, and, and if they hear of me, to think good of me. And it's not that that itself is bad. We are designed to be living in community, and it's better to have approval than disapproval, I suppose. But see, there's a subtle difference that takes place in my soul and in your soul and the soul of everyone. Desiring approval itself is not bad. Needing approval is slavery. And we are in need of approval if we are not conscious of the approval that is already ours because God is mindful of us he cares for us. And he's demonstrated that already by the way that he provides for us, but he has demonstrated it perfectly in an ultimate way in the fact that he has come and become one of us, identified with us, in order to redeem us. And there we move to seeing and pondering the wonder of the gospel. Now you may wonder, where is the gospel in this particular passage? Go back to verse 5. In verse 5, we see this. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And while that is our experience and David's experience as well, most Bible scholars, theologians would say that this is ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ. He is the one who, although being in very nature God, made himself nothing, therefore took the form of one who was lower than the beings that he had created that are in the heavens. And yet, 
because he submitted himself to death, even death on the cross, and he's been raised to every name above that, he has now been exalted and he sits reigning and is now above everything. And we are told in the scriptures that if we are trusting in Jesus Christ, we not only are accepted and redeemed by him, but we will reign with him. So we are created a little lower than the heavenly beings, but one day, by God's grace, we will also reign for all eternity under Christ Jesus. And this is not mere speculation. I don't do this often, but I'm going to ask you to switch to another passage. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll wrap up here then. I'm going to begin reading in verse 5, but you might hear something familiar beginning in early in verse 6. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care? Does it sound familiar? Now, I will say this. What I really like about this particular passage, and those of you who are not detail people like me, sometimes you have difficulty remembering where a particular passage is. I take the writer of Hebrews here who's quoting from Psalm 8 saying, it's written there somewhere. I, give, I take that as permission. So, uh, and so you have that permission too. You made him a little lower, and so he goes on there. Now, looking at in verse 8, after the quoting of, of, of Psalm 8, here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, the wonder of the gospel is this, is that he who is God became like us to bear our punishment, die for us, rise again, and take us who believe with him. There is no better demonstration that God is aware of your condition because he knew enough that he needed to come and become like us. And that God cares for you because his purpose was to pay the penalty that we couldn't pay, to redeem us out of the pit in which we had plunged ourselves, and to raise us up with him. All God's doing, all initiative, we didn't ask, and we didn't deserve it. And yet this is the promise of the glory of God. And that God himself inspired the writers to say, see, even from the beginning, those who ponder creation are awed by God. We see ultimately the reality of God's love and care for us, the affirmation, the acceptance, the approval, the value, the worthiness, the identity. All of that is wrapped up in what Jesus Christ has done by becoming like us, for us, dying for us, rising for us. It doesn't matter. God is aware awesome God who created everything. He knows, he cares, and he has provided. What do we do? Just a couple of practical applications here. First thing I would encourage you to do is to identify the noise in your life. Some of you have more than others. Some of it's just kind of in your heads, and so even if it was quiet, it might still be there. Because that's true for me, sometimes I was interested in what uh, some uh, an acquaintance had mentioned. It's, uh, it's an app. It's just called Headspace for meditation. Not anything weird. Just to clear your head. Relax. 
calm down, get the noise out, and it's a free app you can get on your phone. Just don't use it at the stoplight. Um, in those 30 seconds. Get the noise out. Second, I'll say this, go bird watching. It's not my advice, that comes from Paul Tripp. He put on a Twitter one day that bird watching is good for your soul. And he based that on this, and here's what he said in, his, he, on the, in an article that he had printed uh, you know, that, that, that was a caption for, is that he says that Jesus commands us to go bird watching. He says, consider the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. See, that's actually an imperative. Go do it. It's not a suggestion. It's a, it, he says it's an and, and, what, and he, what Tripp goes on and explains is that when we go and do what Jesus says there, and we watch the way the birds come and go and provide and go about their business, not only do we tend to calm down, but it, if we recognize that God created them, he put them in the order, and all things are working the way that he wants them to do, we begin to recognize God's control and confidence. We remember the rest of the passage that says, if God cares for them, how much more does he care for you who was created after his own image? If you can't get outside, there's a, a video artist named Louis Schwartzberg. I don't believe he's a believer, but his work is, comes on a webpage that's called Moving Art. And he has beautifully captured scenes from all around creation that is, I would dare you to watch and not say, wow. As we see these things, let God speak through his creation, the one who has created all this, but then be reminded, you are the object of his affection. And it has been demonstrated by the fact that Jesus became like you to redeem you because he loves you. When we grasp that, the awesomeness of God and the love that he's given to us, we will cry like the psalmist, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name through all. Father, open our eyes, open our hearts, calm our hearts, and calm our lives. We may see Jesus, that we may rest in Jesus, that we may behold your glory and be lost in wonder. Let's lead us to worship. In the praise and glory of your grace. Amen.